Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levero Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by swan.com. Today, my guest is Bowtide Mara. He is in Argentina, and we talk a bit about geo-arbitrage, FX in Argentina, Bitcoin use, and where things are going with CBDCs. Now, before we begin, the team at swan.com is organizing Pacific Bitcoin Festival. It's coming back this year. It's going to be on in LA in October on the 5th and 6th. The feedback from Pacific Bitcoin last year was fantastic. There is an awesome lineup of speakers, people who have already been announced, such as Jimmy Song, Elise Colleen, Pierre Richard, Lynn Alden, Greg Foss, Preston Pish, Corey Clipston, and so many more. And of course, I'll be there and I'm looking forward to seeing you all there. There will be multiple stages. This is a fantastic opportunity to meet Bitcoiners, learn from Bitcoiners. And if you have family or friends, this is the perfect opportunity to bring them along. This is a great chance for them to see that Bitcoin is real, that there's a real movement here. It's not just a bunch of internet nerds. There's a real movement. And as you know, to expect from the swan.com team, Pacific Bitcoin will be Bitcoin only. It's going to be an awesome celebration of Bitcoin. So come along, get the tickets over at pacificbitcoin.com and use code Levera for a discount. And now onto the episode with Mara. Mara, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, Stefan. Nice to be here. Yeah, so Mara, I've been following some of your work in terms of your writing as well as some of your Twitter commentary, and I thought it would be interesting to talk. I know you have a bit of a focus around geo-arbitrage, mobility, dealing with currency issues, obviously, as you, uh, you've, you've said, that you're in Argentina, and I think that'll be interesting for some listeners to talk about how that's working with, obviously, with the local currency, with the blue dollar rate, with Bitcoin, and all of these things all together. Um, so do you want to just give us a little bit of a background on yourself and what your focus is? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm originally from the Netherlands, and I moved here in, in 2005, uh, to Argentina. And, um, yeah, I, I, when I started out here, I, I really tried to, you know, be the, um, uh, the normal immigrant in terms of, uh, you know, trying to, uh, set up a local business, hire people, et cetera, and do everything in pesos. Uh, of course I was, you know, uh, in a very Dutch kind of mindset where I thought like, okay, this is going to work this way. Uh, but then after a few years of living here, I actually, you know, found out that it, that wasn't going to work just because of the uh, currency situation. Uh, so after a few years, I uh, switched the billing completely to the U.S. Um, I made a lot of business trips, uh, a lot of referral business, etc. And uh, now I just uh, only uh, work with uh, with the U.S. and maybe one or two European clients. But yeah, that way, you know, you're able to uh, live a lot better here uh, on a dollar standard, so to say, uh, versus, uh, you know, relying on the local economy. Yeah. And as I read from some of your articles, you also talk a little bit about Bitcoin also, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I've, uh, uh, I've been in, um, you know, following everything in Bitcoin from around 2017. And, uh, you know, I started out with uh, the whole crypto kind of uh, universe with a lot of different coins, etc. But uh, after a while, sort of distilled and I'm, I'm kind of like a big Bitcoin maxi in a way. I also see some value in, in Monero just as, you know, a digital form of cash, maybe because it's so much easier to, um, to have privacy on on that chain, but not really as a store of value compared to Bitcoin. So yeah, I, I I'm pretty much a Bitcoin maxi at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly I, I take a Bitcoin only focus, and obviously my show is Bitcoin focused. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, I guess, broad broader where things are going. I think 
even your the title of your blog is actually also about geo arbitrage and mobility, mm-hmm. but you've also been writing about this concept of coercive immobility. So do you want to just expand a little bit? What are your views on what's coming there? Uh, so yeah, that that's a, an article that I wrote a few weeks ago, and basically my the idea of coercive um, uh, mobility is that um, the state uh, basically comes into communities uh, and always. Uh, jails or locks up the same people and and that's like they're they're coerced to get out of that community and that's basically an ongoing process and i inverted that uh, theory or that idea to coercive immobility because what we're seeing nowadays uh, and it started with covid and maybe even before that is that the states are, are trying to make it more and more difficult for people to travel uh, you can see this in, in many multiple uh, layers, like, for example, talking about the climate, people shouldn't take planes that much. Like, for example, when I talk to uh, friends in, in, in Holland, it's, it's really crazy that some of them actually canceled their holiday trips just to, uh, you know, not have as much emissions by taking a plane. So that, <laughs> wow. I mean, it's really, yeah, the, the brainwashing is really up to that level already. And uh, I think that will only intensify. And the climate is like a perfect excuse uh, to install all kinds of uh, measures and um, ways in which, uh, you know, a central bank can, can limit your spending or basically determine what you can spend your money on, uh, which is something that China is uh, the pioneer in. And, uh, you know, I think in Europe, especially uh, China is seen as like this, this great uh, technocracy that uh, everyone should follow, like the big example. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that, you know, with the whole uh, uh, vaccine passport idea combined with the CBDC, uh, it will be very easy in the uh, upcoming future just to limit your movements, basically. Because uh, in a cashless society, uh, what's going to happen is, uh, you know, everything is traceable uh, where you spend your money on. Uh, there's no um, anonymity anymore, which is so nice of cash, even though, you know, it might not be a great store of value. It still gives you privacy. So they can't really see uh, authorities can't see what you spend your money on. Now with the CBDC, that's completely different. And, um, you know, basically you can get caps on, uh, CO2, uh, products, etc. So, oh, you're already at your CO2 limit and MasterCard is running, uh, trials with this, uh, other, um, uh, credit card providers also offer that. We have the whole ESG narrative. And I think that's only gonna, gonna increase. And, and the worst thing is, like, I th- really think, I don't think there's some kind of conspiracy around this. I really think the majority of people think this is a good thing for the environment. Everybody's really worried about it. Um, and, and it's just a, a great way to install more control over the, the population in, in that sense. Sadly, I think, and I've spoken about this publicly before, and I think maybe, well, I'm curious to hear what you think. But my view on this is that, unfortunately, most people, they just want to fit in with the tribe, right? They don't care. Yeah. Even if it's wrong, they would rather be with the tribe than be on their own and correct. And sadly, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means a lot of people just go with the narrative, whether that's COVID, whether it's climate hysteria, whether it's, you know, you name it, they'll just go along with it. And so, unfortunately, there will be a lot of people who are very much pro whatever the propaganda is put in front of them. If the narrative is, oh, be very afraid, you need to lower your emissions, you need to eat less meat or whatever, you know, don't eat healthy food, you know, be a vegan, eat the bugs, whatever, you know, a lot of people will just go with that narrative. But then the question is, for those people who do 
you know, whether they are libertarians by principle or whether they just, you know, they're a freedom-loving person, whether that's 10% of the population, we don't know. I think what are the ways that those people will find a, a pathway forward? And I think part of that is what many people in this sort of Bitcoin and libertarian and sort of expat communities are, I guess, focused on. Uh, I'm curious if you have any reflections on that idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, and that, that's also where uh, where we come back to to Bitcoin because basically that's the only way uh, where you can you know uh, send or receive uh, money without anybody interfering with it, and that's so so powerful about the the whole uh, network, um, and because it's so uh, decentralized, it's going to be very hard for a state actor to uh, do something about that. Um, which you you know that's a, a factor that you don't have with all the other coins that have founders, pre-mines, etc. They're just a lot easier to coerce, and I think that is going to be a a very important uh, property of well, I, I don't want to call it you know black market money because then it it already uh, ties a sort of I- illegality to it, but I do think that's where we're going if cash is uh, prohibited. Uh, at a certain point or simply, uh, you know, cash just dissolves because everybody wants to use digital payments, you know, no matter what it is. Because frankly, if, if you go to Northern Europe, uh, there's already a lot of stores where you cannot even pay in cash and people have less and less cash on them. And oh, it's so convenient to pay everything with your credit card or your uh, debit card. And, and of course that's true. Uh, but it comes with a caveat that, you know, you do lose control over your privacy and your spending. Which makes it really easy to, uh, for the ECB to afterwards, you know, implement something like uh, a digital euro and uh, just make sure that uh, you're spending your money on the right things that you know they think you should spend them on and not something else. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think we should try to fight the war on cash. I, you know, for me personally, I try to earn and spend Bitcoin and Lightning uh, directly. But if I can't use that, then my next priority, if I can, is physical cash. And only after that's not possible, that's where I'll look at, you know, digital fiat, you know, <laughs> yeah. car- cards and so on. So, but I, I think of it like we can stave off that CBDC future if more of us use cash, right? Because in some sense, we're keeping it alive, right? But I'm curious, your idea there. Uh, what are you seeing there in terms of LATAM and you know Latin America and cash usage? Yeah, so so my perception of cash has changed dramatically since moving here because before I was kind of like in the in the mold of you know everything oh convenience etc. But after uh, living here for so long, it's it's really clear that you know cash does have uh, a very important use case, and basically. I think about 40 or 50% of the whole Argentine economy functions on cash or at least, uh, you know, in the uh, sort of gray sector where a lot of people, for example, will receive uh, a certain salary. And that's why the stats you, you see um, in terms of, you know, graphs, et cetera, are always like a bit off because uh, everybody receives a certain salary on paper and that's what they use in those stats. But then on the side, they will usually, you know, receive another 25% or 50% uh, just uh, under the table uh, on top of that salary. And that's just so uh, companies don't have to pay that much tax because taxes here are really insane. So everybody tries to uh, avoid taxes as much as possible. Of course, that's not legal, but, you know, that is what happens in practice. Yeah. And I mean, people hear about examples like this, even workers who receive tips and workers obviously love receiving tips in cash because, well, whether they disclose that or not is uh, up to them. And I, I presume a lot of those types of workers are not 
not declaring those on their uh, government income taxes. So I guess cash is another thing that sort of keeps that alive. And so in terms of where things are going, you've also commented on this idea that when the CBDC environments are coming, it's it'll matter what environment you're in. Because if you're in, let's say, a very high compliance environment like the US or the EU compared to other environments, it might be a different story. So can you explain your views on that or maybe elaborate a bit there? Yeah, so uh, technically what uh, Argentina, for example, has created, and, and it lives a little bit in all of the Latin American countries, uh, the informality, but especially here, since there are so many tariffs, uh, taxes, and uh, rules and regulations, for every rule that's um, that's implemented or uh, you know thrown upon the population by the politicians, uh, there's somebody who finds a way around it. And basically, the whole uh, game here in society is um, uh, trying to game the system as much as possible, because a lot of people are just not uh, in agreement with you know, what those funds are used for, et cetera. And they really try to to get around it as much as possible. And, uh, you know, with success. So every single time there's a there's a new rate, for example, uh, because we have, I think, uh, right now about $20 rates. It's really uh, insane. Uh, every single time there's a, there's a new rate. So, for example, now they uh, made a more favorable rate for uh, agro exports just uh, so those agro producers start to uh, liquidate their uh, their crops, which is happening now. But because they were waiting for something like that, so uh, they were just basically okay. You're going to get uh, so much uh, so much tariffs on our exports uh, because Argentina has really high tariffs uh, on those exports. So it's a lot of cash coming in for the uh, central bank coffers as well. Uh, that if you do not give us a, a better ter- a better exchange rate, we're just not going to liquidate those crops and we're just going to sit on them. So uh, they finally did that, and now uh, there was uh, you know record exports after that. Uh, so um, there's always like this this game of um, of cat and mouse uh, being played between producers, the government, uh, and consumers. And basically, for every rule, there's an exception or a way to to get around it. And and that creativity really, uh, you know, gave me another pr- uh, perspective on what government and the nation state actually means. Uh, because, you know, from the outside, if you look from the outside into Argentina, you know, it's tax hell, it's really bad. But when you're actually in Argentina, you can see that nobody nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> right, and I think that's an interesting point because certainly there are places where I think that's a, there are other countries that have a similar thing like that that from the outside it can look like there's all these rules but actually on the ground it's not really enforced or certain elements are just not acting like that and so in some sense this top-down bureaucracy view they might have this idea about certain rules laws regulations etc that they are pushing out into the world but actually on the ground very few people are obeying that or maybe that's just not how it is in practice so um, while we, before we get further into the dollar rates and all this, I'm curious, could you just explain for us a little bit about why Argentina? Like why, why are you in Argentina as opposed to some other place or a low tax place or even just back in the EU? What, was it, what, what appealed to you about Argentina? Uh, so yeah, my my major in um, is in Spanish literature. So I was always like attracted to to Spanish uh, to language uh, and to Latin America in particular. Uh, so after I finished, I just uh, started traveling around. I was also doing a um, Portuguese course uh, on the side. 
that's where I met my my first wife. She was studying in uh, Buenos Aires. She is actually Brazilian, but she was studying here in Argentina uh, because a lot of Brazilians study here because everything is free. Uh, so public universities are free, even if you're a foreigner. Uh, same with healthcare; it doesn't matter. And that's also, I mean, one of the reasons why Argentina has uh, issues paying the bills because you know if everything is free, somebody's paying for that eventually, and uh, uh, that money has to come from somewhere. So you can see here in in certain universities, this like sixty percent is uh, is Brazilian because in Brazil there's a a quota. Uh, for example, for uh, something like medicine, and here does not, uh, and everybody can just go in. And uh, in Brazil, they would be forced to if they're not if they don't fit in the quota, they would have to go to a private university and uh, pay tuition. But here, you know, they can uh, come here, do the medicine, and then they leave. So also in terms of value for Argentina, uh, they're basically just educating a lot of people here. And sending them off right after. So there's not a lot of value that sticks in Argentina in that sense. Um, so yeah, then I moved uh, here uh, right after I finished uh, studying in the Netherlands. And then um, that was around t- 2004, 2005. And uh, after a while, we separated and I just stayed here, um, you know, trying to uh, to make a living locally. And then afterwards, uh, switching to something else. So I came here basically with literature, which doesn't really pay the bills. Uh, I tried to, you know, get a position here at the university. Uh, but I, you know, I saw the salaries and stuff and I thought, well, I'm not going to survive here if I, I want to do this. Um, so eventually I completely shifted and started learning, uh, programming and digital marketing. And I got a job in that, uh, worked for a while for a company. And then afterwards, I decided to, uh, uh, to create my own company, and uh, I've been doing that ever since. So uh, at first here, just locally, and then afterwards, I just uh, focused on uh, the international market and mainly the U.S. Yeah, right. And I think that's a common theme that we see with Argentina is uh, people doing geo-arbitrage, this idea of earning from wealthier countries, from customers who are paying them in the wealthier countries, but living in countries where let's say the cost of living is a bit cheaper so i guess you're interested in that and you're focused on that case yeah so for me it was kind of a natural uh a natural way of uh of going around things because i was actually forced to do that otherwise i would have probably moved back to europe uh you know or maybe try the u.s because uh it's really really hard to live on a peso standard here um plus there's you know uh, a plethora of other uh, difficulties that you come into touch with if you start a local company, hire local people. So one thing that happened is, uh, you know, we had employees here and here there's really like a, a suing culture. So every single time you fire an employee, they will basically start a lawsuit and bleed you dry. And the, the justice system is all geared towards the employee. Uh, they're always right. So it doesn't really matter what you do, but you're going to have to pay something. And after a while, that was just like, you know, we had to leave the office. We had to, we basically lost most of the company savings. And, and you know, then I sat down and had a real hard think. It's like, yeah, this is not going to work here locally. So, you know, then I just set up an international company and, and started working from abroad. So in a way, it reminds me of this idea that you can, pick and choose from the different countries around the world as opposed to just going to one place and doing everything there that you could be uh, having staff that you're paying other overseas and not necessarily 
having to deal with Argentinian, well, uh, not having to deal with Argentinian labor laws as much, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, that, and that has become more and more uh, easy. And I, I think that's also one of the uh, the main theses in, in The Sovereign Individual, that book, for example, is uh, that you can really pick and choose your jurisdictions and it's going to make it harder and harder for uh, nation states to be able to, you know, tax you, control you, etc. And And the counterpoint to that is that's why I also think that they will uh, start to push harder with CBDCs, uh, with movement control, etc. So it's sort of like t- a two-way system that is working against each other because at this point, I think we're at the, the peak of how easy it is. Uh, because, for example, I, I have um, a U.S. client and they work with about 35 people uh, that are all based here in Argentina. Uh, they don't have a local company and they do everything through deal. Now, uh, and uh, they're contractors on deal, uh, so they... Uh, need to provide uh, sort of the, their tax uh, IDs, et cetera, locally uh, to deal and the rest of the taxes and all that uh, those uh, labor-related issues is, is on them. Um, I, I see maybe in the future that uh, things like that are going to be more complicated, but right now it's very easy to do such uh, things. And as a company uh, internationally, you don't have to worry about any of those lo- local uh, laws, et cetera. So that's uh, really positive. Um, but, you know, whenever I see uh, big supranational organizations talking about, um, you know, uh, worldwide taxation, etc., I, I sort of see that, you know, they want to do something about it. And uh, one of the things that I also focus on a lot is uh, investment migration um, with my company. And um, uh, basically what we're seeing there is that they're trying, especially the EU, is really cracking down on citizenship by investment programs. Uh, even if they're not within the EU. So lately they've been putting pressure on Caribbean and islands uh, that offer CBDCs, basically saying if you don't up the price, we're going to take away your Schengen visa free access, etc. And St. Kitts already uh, came to that and they basically said, okay, we're going to double the price uh, to maintain that uh, Schengen access. Um, and the EU is doing that uh, same thing within Europe, really trying to get rid of all the golden visa programs well, at the same time, you know, they uh, allow hordes of uh, illegal uh, immigrants basically to come in. So it's it's kind of a weird uh, policy, uh, but uh, that's uh, that's what I see. Like, you know, they're trying to make it uh, harder for capital to move together with the people. Um, and, and that's, I think, a, a global phenomenon. I think that that will only increase. I see. And... I think I agree. That's definitely the direction we see some of these large, you know, EU-style uh, uh, government organizations going. But on the counter side, there are still other countries who are competing for people, and so I think it's an interesting dynamic to see that because, in some ways, you have some countries who are trying to compete and trying to attract people there, and then on the other hand, you have, let's say, the EU trying to make it hard for people to do that. So. Do you just see uh, more and more countries trying to compete or do you see more companies or countries rather just going, oh, okay, we'll go with a global minimum tax or we'll go with et cetera, whatever bureaucracy you want, EU? Um, so, yeah, I think there, there's a divide there because w- what you basically see in, um, in South America is that um, they will me- uh, remain neutral, for example, in a uh, conflict that we have right now uh, with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Brazil, Argentina, like most countries here, they're sort of like, okay, it's not our problem. 
you guys uh, fight it out and we're not going to take a stance on this because, you know, it's, it's not our issue, which I think is very wise. Um, and they do that with a lot of stuff. So, for example, Argentina still has visa-free access for Russians. So does Brazil. And, of course, they, um, they have uh, birthright citizenship here. Uh, so a lot of uh, Russian uh, migration, you know, upper middle class, middle class, uh, have come here uh, with, you know, uh, pregnancies and uh, just uh, started to have kids in Argentina. Uh, the estimates are that it's about 15,000 so far uh that that have done this and about half of the those people actually stay in argentina because once you have a, a child here the child is automatically uh argentine and then after one year more or less the parents can also get citizenship um so of course uh you know if you're on a russian passport uh or belarus uh, for that matter because they also have visa-free uh, access still uh, it's very compelling because then afterwards you can actually use that, those Argentine passports to travel around. And uh, Argentina has the best uh, passport in terms of visa-free access uh, of South America. Uh, the only one that you know could potentially be better is the is Chile because they have uh, ESTA visas for the U.S. But they don't actually have more uh, visa-free countries. That's uh, Argentina's number one there. So yeah, having that versus a Russian or a Belarusian passport is, of course, uh, phenomenal. Um, so that's happening a lot, and um, and Argentina is not trying to stop that either, uh, because um, in, in terms of, of freedom of entry, freedom of living in Argentina, the constitution is really phenomenal, uh, in my opinion. Uh, once you are on Argentine so soil, even if you're a tourist, uh, you're considered an inhabitant, and the inhabitant has the same uh, rights as a citizen or resident uh it doesn't matter so once you're on the soil you basically uh, get the same rights that's also why it's so hard for them to uh to charge uh in uh, public uh, hospitals or public universities uh for foreigners because basically they can't do that because that would create uh, a distinction which doesn't exist in the constitution back to the show in a moment Coinkite.com is the creator of my favorite Bitcoin hardware device, the cold card. And this is an ultra secure device that you can use to generate your Bitcoin private keys and write down your 12 or 24 words. And of course, there is a pre and post pin. So keep that in mind when you're writing things down. And you can use this device without even plugging it into a computer, which is a fantastic improvement in terms of giving yourself that additional peace of mind. Because with Bitcoin, you need to keep your private keys secret. And the features and the tools that the cold card gives you help you do this. Over at CoinKite, you can find a range of other devices. And of course, you can pre-order the new device, which is coming. It's called the Q1. So to find all of that, go to CoinKite.com and get a discount on your cold cards using code Levera. Mempool.space is the leading Bitcoin and blockchain visualizer. You can do all kinds of things there, whether that's looking at Bitcoin on-chain, you can search transactions, you can target the fee for your transaction, and you can even use the Lightning Explorer to explore things like which Lightning nodes are big or well-connected. They've even got a mining dashboard. So there's all kinds of statistics and things that you can find over at mempool.space. And don't forget, it's open source. So if you don't want to trust somebody else, you can host it yourself and run it on your own. They've got new features coming. So keep an eye out on the website and on the social media channels over at mempool.space. And now back to the show. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I wasn't aware of that. I am aware, though, that the Argentinian citizenship cannot be renounced, though. That's an interesting one, isn't it? So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, that's always one of the uh, things that, that uh, Twitter brings uh, <laughs> brings up a lot, like all the passport bros on Twitter. is always like, yeah, but you can't renounce the passport, man. And it's like, yeah, of course, right now in the world, there are only two citizenships that charge based on uh, your citizenship, and that's the U.S. and, and Eritrea. Uh, so if you have one of those two passports, you're going to be taxed worldwide no matter where you live. And of course, you can renounce those uh, and you can't renounce the Argentine passport. But at the same time, uh, how many Eritreans are paying that tax? Like, And that's the, the question you need to ask with Argentina is like if they would ever implement something like that, nobody's going to pay taxes. Like seriously, all the Argentines would just be yeah okay, nice story, bro. <laughs> it's like because that because that's what what's already happening right now uh, in the country. If it, with actual residents, you know, a lot of things that are just going around it, and especially if if they're living in another country, and it's just going to be oh, and it can't renounce. Okay, well, I'm not going to pay tax either. So I don't think that's that much of an issue, uh, to be honest. Um, because I also think like if they would ever do citizenship based taxation, then that they would have to adjust that law that you would actually be able to renounce because it would, otherwise it's kind of like a lock in that, you know, they have you forever. Yeah. So. And I mean, as I'm sure you're familiar with the sovereign individual, they, they might well look for ways to try to, let's say, trap people into their tax net or into their, you know, to stop people from leaving, you know, that like we've seen that historically that, that that's happened. So I guess maybe that's where some of the concern is coming from. But I mean, certainly I agree with you that uh, while the stated law written on paper might be one thing, what happens in practice is another. And that in that scenario, well, if you're if you have an Argentinian passport uh, and you're overseas working somewhere else, well, what are the what's the possibility that the Argentinian government would go after you there? It's kind of unlikely, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the enforcement is already so hard uh, locally, just in the country. You know, uh, uh, it's it's almost well, I wouldn't say a failed state because a lot of things do work very well compared to you know real failed states. Uh, but like, there's no real enforcement from the state, and it's really weird that you know in a country that has so many rules and regulations on paper, and that's why in terms of economic freedom, it's always like in the you know the bottom part uh, compared to Europe or the U.S. I've never felt more free in terms of not having the state breathe down my neck here versus Europe, for example. In Europe, I was constantly aware uh, of, you know, that, that state control, uh, be it with cameras or, you know, what everything is being tracked all the time. And of course, yeah, you know, I'm, I wasn't doing anything illegal. So in that sense, like, I, I could use the excuse, yeah, but I, you know, I'm not doing anything illegal, so I don't care. But I did care because I just don't like that, you know. I just want uh, to live my life without, uh, you know, state breathing down my neck all the time. And that's basically something that doesn't happen here at all. You are here in a, a huge country because it's it's really huge uh, with not a lot of people, and you know, you're left to your own devices. Go do whatever and see how to, how you survive. And I, that's something that I really like about Argentina. Excellent. And I guess well, on the topic of survival in Argentina, can you share any insight for people on, let's say, security in Argentina, like crime rates and things like this? Is that a problem for people, like petty crime? Or is that, like, uh, presumably, you, obviously, you, you find it acceptable? Yeah, so um, that's always uh, one of the arguments that, that people... Um, come up with to not travel to Argentina, for example, or South America for that matter, because 
the crime rates in uh, South America are higher than uh, you know most countries in Asia, for example. But at the same time, in Argentina, uh, crime rates are, are very low uh, compared to other countries in the region. Um, you know, it's not like in Brazil where, uh, you know, people will hold you up with uh, maybe a gun or something and, and try to rob you. There is a lot of petty crime here in the city um, in terms of, you know, snatching your phone or uh, if, you, if you're not paying attention, uh, maybe uh, uh, snatching a, a wallet. But it's, it's the same thing in any big city. Uh, in that sense, it's, it's not that different. If you just pay attention and you're not flashing around your wealth or your latest iPhone, then uh, this shouldn't be an issue at all. Um, I have, you know, uh, knock on wood, but I've, I've never had any issues here with uh, uh, security. And especially in, in the city, um, you're not going to have um, many problems with, um, you know, Holdups or robberies and that kind of stuff. That that happens on the peripheries, like in the more uh, you know working class neighborhoods. Uh, so that's the stuff that you see on the news, and that's why most Argentines they have this this feeling that you know oh the country's so unsafe and insecure because that's the thing that is portrayed on news and social media like all day. If one thing happens, you will see that on loop the whole day, and just that one thing. So that already indicates for me. Uh, you know, that it's, it's not really that much of an issue. Um, because it's always like, uh, you know, and it can be a really small case that, you know, in the US would never get as much attention, for example. Uh, and, and here it's like, oh, you know, and everybody's talking about it. And, uh, it's the only thing that they talk about for a day. Um, and in the interior, it's even less. So if you go to other cities, um, or, you know, just small towns, et cetera, it's, it's really super chill. Um, so, uh, I've also lived in Brazil for a while and, you know, Brazil is definitely a different animal in that, in that sense. Uh, I lived in Sao Paulo, um, where, you know, if you would just, uh, not pay attention and uh, go from one really classy neighborhood and just walk down, uh, the wrong corner, it was just like, oh, all of a sudden I'm in like a, a semi favela with junkies, uh, fighting over the next shot, basically, and I need to run now. Damn. <laughs> that, that happened a couple of times. And, you know, that kind of uh, situation doesn't happen here at all. Like, uh, there are some, uh, you know, mini, uh, uh, mini slums, uh, here and there. Um, but, you know, normally you don't come there, uh, especially not if you're a tourist. Uh, so you won't really notice, uh, anything of that nature. Right. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about the US dollar, the Argentine peso, Bitcoin, and where it all interacts. Uh, as you were saying, there are multiple rates for the Argentine peso. Uh, and so the typical thing I've heard, like in not just Argentina, but in other countries in general, is that there's often a government rate, but that rate's not realistic. And actually, the real true rate is you know, is worse than that or is, you know, higher than that, but the government doesn't want to make it look bad, so they'll have a set rate at a particular level. So can you explain a little bit about how that's working in Argentina? Uh, yeah, so from the central bank, uh, they basically set a fictitious rate that, uh, you know, nobody uh, follows because uh, there's caps on buying dollars. So as soon as they installed those uh, caps with a limit of $200 a month that, uh, you know, you can buy at that rate... Uh, the parallel market emerged and, uh, basically that's the blue rate, which is double the official rate, uh, because the demand for dollars is just so high. So everybody, uh, just, uh, uh, buys dollars on that secondary market, which is, you know, technically illegal, but, uh, nobody does anything about it. 
and the official rate is used for some importers and and other services but because dollars are so scarce scarce right now uh like seriously the uh, liquid reserves are minus i think 14 billion dollars right now it takes a long time even for imports to clear now so they uh, have a 60 day window uh for the government to say okay you can get dollars at that price uh, well, at the same time, you know, for politicians and their families, they can buy dollars at that price without any issues. Uh, that's also in the small print of, uh, <laughs> of yeah. the covenant. So that we're seeing the Cantalon system like in real time here in Argentina where they, they get, you know, anything that's, uh, that's coming from the printer, they get it the quickest. They get access to dollars. Uh, they know when a devaluation is going to happen. And sometimes it's so blatant yeah, with, you know, bond purchases and selling. Uh, directly from the government uh, in volume that you know, oh, there's going to be devaluation or, you know, right. <laughs> sort of like you can, they you know can something's see it coming. on the graphs. Like this is exactly, uh, this is not normal behavior. Yeah. One quick question on this. So on this um, official government rate, if you, let's, let's say a foreigner comes to the country and they've got their debit card or credit card and they tap and pay, are they getting the official government rate there or are they, you know, what rate is being used at that point? It's not the mid-market rate? Uh, so yeah, at, um, I think uh, from last year onwards or starting this year, uh, they changed that rate because basically they weren't capturing any of those inbound dollars uh, that way because all the uh, tourists that came here uh, were just going to swap on the uh, black market uh, to get a better rate. Uh, whereas if they would pay with a credit card, it would be twice as expensive because they were paying the official rate. Uh, so they changed that and they now apply a, which is called the MEP uh, rate, which is just like a 10% below the blue right. rate. So you're, you're getting a lot, a lot better rate. It's still not uh, exactly the blue rate, but it's very close. So, you know, if you don't want to carry huge amounts of cash with you all the time, uh, then that's a good option. I would say, you know, it's still worth the uh, exchanging on the black market just because a lot of businesses do not accept credit cards. Uh, or they will give a cash discount, et cetera. So it's still worth it to at least when you visit, uh, you know, bring a decent amount of dollars with you to exchange, um, on the, uh, on the black market. Uh, one thing that you do have to keep in, uh, into account is that those dollars need to be as crisp as possible. Um, it's called the blue rate because of the blue stripes uh, in those yeah. new, uh, hundred dollar bills. Yes, so so that that's why it's called the uh, blue rate. And if you have uh, what's called the small heads, uh, one hundred dollar bills uh, with the smaller uh, Benjamins, uh, those are uh, worth a five percent less on the market. So uh, nobody wants them because apparently they're more easily forgeable, etc. So uh, they get a discount, and uh, frankly, nowadays nobody wants to touch those. So it's nice when I go to the U.S., I just tell my Cueva, hey, give me all the small heads and uh, at a discount, and then I, I spend them in the U.S. because there nobody cares. <laughs> right, so you get a little arbitrage there as well. Okay, interesting. Exactly. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how this works in terms of people using these markets? And, of, of course, if uh, you know Bitcoin and maybe some of the stable coins, not that I promote stable coins, but just to understand you know, what's happening on the ground. Yeah, so uh, there's uh, most Cuevas, uh, which is basically the money exchanges uh, on the black market. What they will do is uh, they will exchange cash uh, dollars for pesos at that black market rate or vice versa. They also, if you want to get money into the country, 
um, let's say I want five thousand uh, dollars, uh, bringing that to Argentina from an uh, an account offshore. Of course, you're not going to send that through the banking system because of all the issues, withholdings, etc. Uh, so what they will do is they'll say, okay, you need five thousand dollars here. Uh, I will match you with a local uh, that wants five thousand dollars offshore. Uh, you transfer it to that account and uh, you get the dollars here minus 4%, which is their fee. And you can uh, have that either in cash uh, dollars or cash pesos. And of course, you're not going to say pesos. You just swap uh, dollars over time to pesos as you need them uh, just because they depreciate so quickly. So uh, that is one way through the traditional banking system, uh, which is kind of like a triangle. And then there's some uh, younger Cuevas or, you know, with younger people, uh, more millennials that are also familiar with crypto. Uh, the most traditional uh, Cuevas don't handle crypto or Bitcoin. And there uh, I've swapped a couple times with Bitcoin. The problem with that is that there's uh, because of the volatility in the, in the settlement times, if you don't do it through lightning and most of these go really on chain. So it takes a while for it to clear. Uh, the price can, you know, fluctuate. Uh, so most Cuevas, they will rather prefer uh, a stable coin uh, just because of that. Because otherwise, you know, you, you agree to a price and then it's harder to uh, stick to that price because they might lose out or you might lose out if you use Bitcoin. Uh, so most of those uh, transactions are used uh, with USDT. Um, and then funnily enough, and, and the, I love this because... You know, everything is always about, yeah, decentralization, et cetera. And here just everybody uses a USDT from exchange to exchange over the Tron network, which is the only use case for Tron in this world is because it's cheaper transaction fees. So that's the only thing that counts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, decentralization just became a theater and it's just kind of like regulatory arbitrage. I mean, they might as well not be using a blockchain at that point, right? It may just literally be exactly. a spreadsheet on Excel somewhere. <laughs> um, but because it's a blo- it's a blockchain, and because you know, I guess that's that's what people believe, right? In the, um, and if that's what allows the this kind of fiction to proceed, then that's what they're doing. Um, now, I guess the way I'm seeing it is the US dollar demand is different to Bitcoin demand, right? Like, if you are a Bitcoin hodler, that's a different thing because you actually want to save and hodl. Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I get some people who I see some people kind of complaining online that oh see look, look there's all, there's this big use that bitcoin is not solving but at, at the end of the day if a person doesn't want bitcoin exposure you know i'm not putting them down or something but maybe they're just not ready for it yet maybe they are not in the economic position to be saving with bitcoin at least that's how i'm thinking about it of course i earn and spend bitcoin and i would love to see more people do that but i think i'm also trying to be realistic about what is the unique selling point of bitcoin and what are the cases where, look, if someone wants USD exposure, well, then they're just gonna they're gonna do whatever the cheapest and fastest thing for that is, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're you're uh, spot on there because uh, what happens is there's a lot of people uh, that you know younger people that do save in Bitcoin and they just don't touch that at all. And the reason why they use uh, so much uh, stable coins and dollars is just because. That is all, you know, month to month kind of transactional uh, payments that they need to swap back to pesos. So those dollars always need to be on the uh, on the go and ready for them to change it to pesos whenever they need it. So um, it's it's really um, 
more of a practical issue. Uh, and those aren't really savings. So, uh, you know, if people really want to save, um, they will either have dollars in cash or, you know, if they're uh, already up to the, uh, you know, Bitcoin huddle uh, mode, then they will uh, save in Bitcoin. And I know quite a few people because the Bitcoin community here is, is pretty big. There are quite a few people that, that do that. And of course, those need to be savings that you don't need at all. And, you know, that can be tough here in this uh, economic environment where, you know, most people just live month to month and, and they will need all the money that comes in. Yeah. And uh, I know also actually Moon Wallet. I know the Moon Wallet team are Argentinian as well. So I guess uh, there's a lot of Moon users there. Yeah, yeah. I actually use their wallet. Uh, it's it's really nice. Um, yeah, and, and the Bitcoin Foundation here is uh, is really big. They uh, they do a lot of uh, mining courses, and uh, um, yeah, it's a great community. Um, you know, some big uh, events also around Bitcoin. Um, and I think it was around five years ago that um, uh, there was still some uh, you know really diehard Bitcoiners here. Uh, you know, one that I, I personally know, and uh, well, he left from Mexico now, but he was uh, seriously doing all of his finances on Bitcoin. He didn't spend any fiat, and he was just living uh, on a Bitcoin coin standard for everything. And I think yeah. he still does that, even in uh, you know traveling around, etc. Yeah. And so, out of curiosity, for someone who wanted to go to Argentina and spend Bitcoin and try to do that. How feasible is that? Or is it more like you'd basically need to sell for cash and spend cash mainly? Yeah, you're going to have to, uh, um, you're going to have to swap for cash because most, uh, you know, businesses, they don't, they don't even have a Bitcoin wallet or they yeah. wouldn't know how it works. So they would become suspicious that, oh, maybe it's a scam because there's been, there have been so many scams here with crypto, uh, specifically. And I don't know if you read, but like last week, uh, a guy got, uh, uh, dismembered. Uh, he was also like a crypto trader, but basically oh, he was scamming over, uh, t- yeah, tons of people and, uh, he ended badly. Uh, that case is still ongoing, but like the, the, the stigma of that kind of, um, you know, uh, scamming, uh, crypto, uh, sphere is around any, anything related to crypto, even Bitcoin, uh, that, you know, people will perceive it that way. So, um, it, it's not, uh, not that easy to spend Bitcoin here. Um, and, uh, frankly, not even easy to spend dollars because, um, you know, uh, the businesses just won't have the, uh, change or, you know, it will be very hard for them to justify it in their uh, administration because what rate are they going to apply? You know, because technically right. they would have to do use the official rate. So nobody wants to uh, uh, use dollars for day to day transactions here. So you just, you know, everything gets swapped to pesos and then you pay in pesos. Interesting, because I've noticed in some other countries, you know, again, not insulting Argentina or something, but other countries I've seen, some of them will do it where you can pay with USD, but they'll give you change back in their local currency. But that does require having you know relatively liquid and stable exchange rates and as you said in argentina that's uh not a given of course with uh, 20 different rates and you know maybe people would fight over what rate should be applying they should be, you know because obviously the customer will say no i want the blue rate and the the merchant might say no no i want to give you a lower rate so i can you know so you know there's obviously going to be arguments around that too yeah, for, for, for bigger items, for example, uh, they're all priced in dollars. So if you want to buy property here or, uh, you know, a car, the base is always, uh, in, in dollars. And, uh, for property, it's actually very rare that you can pay, uh, in pesos, uh, or it will have, 
like a, a very high uh, rate uh, tied to that. But most uh, second-hand uh, homes uh, or used homes, they will always be traded in, in dollars. So if you want to buy an apartment or whatever, it's always going to be uh, dollars. It can be a bag of cash or, you know, just a, a wire. Um, most people also have U.S. bank accounts. So what happens a lot of times is that the owner will just say, okay, I just uh, deposit the uh, funds into my U.S. account. It doesn't even touch Argentina. Uh, you just pay the local taxes here on uh, based on the contract. And, and that's that. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, it's just like the transaction was just not even done inside the Argentinian banking system at all. Like <laughs> exactly. it's just all happening yeah. outside. Um, okay, great. Yeah. Of course, we would love to, you know, I would love to see a future where everyone just does everything natively with Bitcoin. Um, but of course, I understand we're not there yet. And we have to, we have to <laughs> kind of grow the base of Bitcoin users and grow the, you know, win, we have to win hearts and minds in some sense. And so I guess... Let's talk a little bit about some of the property market in Argentina because you've written about this also and you've been speaking about it. You've been talking about how they use US dollars for pricing. They have different markets in terms of already existing properties and then off plan or I forgot the exact term for that. But if you could maybe spell out a little bit of your thoughts around how the property market works there for people who are you know, thinking about you know, think about that. Um, and so, yeah. Oh, one other question. Can you buy property as a non-resident of Argentina? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, there's no limitations. The only limit there is for buying property uh, as a foreigner is, uh, even as like a foreign uh, resident, is uh, uh, agricultural property. Um, and the limit is that there can only be a max of 15% per province in the hands of uh, foreigners. Uh, and right now, none of the provinces is even close to that. I think, you know, the, the highest uh, is about 6%. So, you know, you can still buy whatever you, uh, whatever you want here. There's no uh, limits there. Um, Interesting. And, and that only goes for rural property. So, you know, a lot of acreage, et cetera. But, uh, you know, uh, apartments, you know, don't even fit that profile. So you can just buy uh, whatever city property you, uh, you feel like. Yeah. And when it comes to getting residency rights in Argentina do you need to buy a property above a certain threshold like other countries have that is there a threshold here or how does that work uh, so Argentina does not have a golden visa uh, where if you buy property you automatically get residency so uh, you will have to get residency through other means and uh, one of the most uh, popular visas is the rentista visa which is basically uh, a pensioners or a passive income visa um, they recently upped the amounts. Uh, according to the official rate, it should be around $2,000 a month that you need to be, show uh, like that income. you can yeah. sustain yourself, income. But that can be $1,000 depending on you know what kind of exchanges you use. So basically, I know some people that use uh, Western Union. They send uh, – because Western Union uses the, the blue market rate, which is kind of funny. <laughs> So they, they use Western Union, they get in all those pesos, they uh, and then afterwards deposit them on their bank account to show the government, hey, look, I made, uh, you know, $2,000 this month. And then afterwards, they uh, they swap it back to, to dollars. And they basically only uh, had $1,000 per month instead of the 2000 which is on paper. Um, <laughs> so I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways around that. But that that's the most, um, the most common popular way. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, after two years of, you know, showing that you have a tie, ties to the country, uh, you can already apply for citizenship if you wanted to. So it's also one of the fastest routes to citizenship if you actually live in the country. 
uh, and it's you know a pretty decent passport. Yeah, interesting. Or well, as you said, um, if you are having giving birth in the country as well, that's another way. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I guess in terms of where things are going more broadly, you know, if we zoom out a little bit and we think about you know where things are going with CBDCs, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any views there? Uh, I think you've mentioned that you believe around 2030 they're going to be commonplace. So do you want to expand a little bit on your views there? Uh, yeah. So uh, the trials that we're seeing uh, around CBDCs in, in you know multiple countries, uh, they're they're expanding. Uh, you can see Fed now in the U.S., which technically is not a CBDC, but it's it's like the road to a CBDC. Uh, ECB uh, is running. Um, uh, trials that are already, you know, ready to, to launch, uh, like they, uh, did in China a few years back when they launched the first CBDC. Um, that's probably going to happen towards the end of the year. And the EU is, uh, particularly, you know, uh, scary in that sense that, uh, they also have one of the, uh, uh, best, uh, in quotes, uh, ID, digital ID programs. Uh, that is the program that, um, uh, the UN wants to use for vaccine passports, et cetera. Uh, if they would come around, you know, that's the, the model that, that they would use. That's already, um, uh, been decided. That's also one of the reasons why, um, uh, I, I believe in the U.S. it was uh, New York that had like a similar uh, vaccine passport uh, program that was terminated because of that, um, uh, because that's basically going to be the blueprint. Now, uh, of course, nobody knows if that will actually come to fruition, but uh, I do think that in Europe uh, specifically, um, they will uh, start tying your digital ID to uh, the CBDC eventually. And I already see it within the Netherlands, for example. If I want to do anything uh, government-related, it's all digital ID. You can only log in with your digital ID. Um, and, um, you know, it's tied to an app on your phone. Uh, you need to be physically uh, there. Um, it's It doesn't use biometrics, but... Uh, it's it's really I I lost my access once and it's hell to get it back. <laughs> uh, that was a few years ago. Uh, so you know I I still have it. I need it for for some um, uh, things that you know a- uh, admin stuff that I need to do in Holland from from time to time. And you know uh, I can see that completely being woven into uh, your bank account, your financial data, and everything is already so. Um, uh, intertwined in Europe that, you know, won't be that hard to roll all these things out. Like, for example, I opened up a, a Greek bank account, um, a few years back, uh, and, um, that already appeared on my, uh, Dutch, uh, tax, uh, uh, system, like, uh, almost uh, instantly. So it's already all connected, no matter what country in the EU you're in. Like, all that data is being shared and, uh, will pop up, uh, you know, uh, uh, everywhere so um so yeah that's something to to look out for and in that sense um you know i'm I'm happy to uh live here where you know majority still uses cash uh i don't see a cbdc coming anytime soon they might try and the nice thing then is like uh, they can try and i'm pretty sure that within a week we have a similar black market parallel market situation where just everybody starts, uh, you know, buying stuff with Bitcoin or whatever. It would have actually uh, launch uh, a Bitcoin standard way quicker. I think if uh, countries like Argentina try to outlaw it, 
and uh, try to install like a CBDC uh, because they're so used to cash. Uh, so I think that would be very interesting. And the IMF, actually, one of their pinpoints for Argentina, which is the country with the biggest loan, I think it's almost 60% of the whole IMF portfolio is Argentina. That's why it's too big to fail. Uh, one of their points was that they should really crack down on, on crypto. So we, I, I've been seeing that with local exchanges already that, you know, the requirements are, uh, are, uh, more and more complicated. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, data sharing, et cetera. Um, so they, they're trying to uh, go after it, but at the same time, they're, they're failing, uh, because, you know, people still, uh, use it a lot. So, yeah. And as we saw with El Salvador, obviously the IMF were going against them on Bitcoin also. So it, it may be a related thing or for similar reasons that they were doing that. But I think. Coming back to that broader theme we were mentioning is that some of these big bureaucratic governments and states are trying to either increase the taxes or make it hard for people to leave. But then at the same time, there are other options around the world. And I think people can just open their eyes and op- you know, be a little bit more open-minded to options that are out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, you know, people are really rooted in their in their communities and find it very hard to to leave, you know, which is understandable uh, as well. And of course, uh, everybody's also, or not everybody, but I would say the bell curve is real in terms of the bell curve meme. Uh, that That is a real thing. Uh, you know, the, like you, you said, like they, everybody goes and uh, stands behind the current thing. And that is really what is happening. So, you know, if your government says that, oh, you know, these countries are very dangerous, then, you know, 80% of the people will po- probably think, oh, yeah, I shouldn't go there, you know. Um, so the the people that look for alternatives uh, are always in the minority, I think. And everybody, uh, the you know, 80% will just accept their situation as is and, uh, and try to go along with that. Yeah, but I, I do believe Bitcoin will drive a shift longer term. I believe that even if it is a minority, even if it is like this intransigent minority of 10%, let's say, I think that 10% will drive a broader shift in society, like to the rest of the world. Uh, but it's going to take some time to get there. It's not going to happen tomorrow. So I think it, uh, until then, you have to you have to sort of learn to play the game and do a little bit of you know. For some people, that's doing the geo arbitrage game and just being a little open minded to different options that are out there. Um, so Mara, it's been a great chat with you. Do you have any, uh, I guess, closing thoughts? Any final pieces of advice for people? Um, maybe if somebody's thinking about uh, going to Argentina, do you have any advice for somebody who's considering Argentina? Um, so yeah, I have, uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter and uh, you, you can see my pinned tweet has a lot of recommendations for Argentina. Uh, it goes from, you know, currency to, uh, restaurants, et cetera, in Buenos Aires. Um, so yeah, if you, uh, need, you know, additional, uh, uh advice or whatever, you can always DM me on, on Twitter, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll see it. Um, and of course, you know, if you want to read more about Argentina's history, uh, currency issues, etc., I also uh, have a, uh, a blog, so you can also uh, uh, read more on, uh, uh, on that blog. Um, and yeah, I think uh, if you have any questions, just, uh, just uh, hook me up on Twitter and, um, and I'll respond. Excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Show notes are available at stefanlevera.com. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.